0: Welcome to the Green Minds podcast, the podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations on climate change and sustainability. My name is Marie-Céline and I'm your host for this episode. In December 2023, the 28th Annual Conference of the Parties, or as we usually call it, COP28, was held in Dubai with more than 80,000 delegates from nearly every country, including more than 160 heads of states, in more than 700 CEOs. COP28 marked the completion of the first ever global stocktake, through which countries and other stakeholders reflected on the global progress made since 2015 and the Paris Agreement. Although COP28 saw more than $80 billion worth of climate finance commitments, the stocktake highlighted that these financial pledges were insufficient to meet the Paris Agreement objectives. According to the Climate Policy Initiative, which published in November a Global Landscape on Climate Finance, the annual climate finance needed ranges from 8.1 to 9 trillion of US dollars. Estimates of today's climate finance flows are around 1.3 trillion of US dollars. The financial sector, of course, has a massive responsibility in helping to facilitate and deploy such funding. A study from the consulting firm McKinsey on financial institutions suggests that commercial banks could provide up to $2.6 trillion per year for net-zero investments. Today, we'll talk about the role of banks in transitioning to net-zero economies, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Sarah Kemitz. Sarah is the head of the Secretariat for the Net-Zero Banking Alliance within Unipify. UNEPFI is the finance initiative within UNEP, the United Nations Environment Programme. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi Celine, lovely to be with you. We have a lot of interesting things to talk about, but to kick things off, do you want to give an introduction of your background and what did you do prior to joining UNEPFI?
1: Yes, happy to. Um, I think sometimes it's good um, for your fellow students to hear about different career paths. So hopefully it's a little bit interesting. Um, So uh, my first degree was in environmental science um, back in the days when universities really were only just starting to offer degrees in environmental science. And after that, I worked in ecological conservation for a while doing ancient woodland, lowland heath and wetlands in, in East Anglia. Um, And then I did a master's in environmental forestry, um, PhD in soil science, and um, after that five years of postdoc research. Um, But then I kind of made the the difficult decision to leave the lab, stop doing the research and move to the British Library to help them with a strategy to deal with the digital transition and remain relevant for scientific researchers After that, uh, I took quite an unexpected turn in my career and went and became a banking supervisor at what was then the Financial Services Authority and spent about 10 years with various roles at the FSA, the Prudential Regulation Authority and the Bank of England. And over that time, managed to bring in my passion for the environment into my supervisory work and did more work on climate risk. So that was what I did before joining the UNEPFI and um, for the last three years I've been here. I initially came to work on the Principles for Responsible Banking's collective commitment for climate action and also the Net Zero Owner Alliance. Uh, but shortly after I arrived, we, we um, realised that we needed to establish the Net Zero Banking Alliance. So, um, yeah, so it's been a, a journey all the way through to that.
0: Thank you for that. It's interesting how uh, you've been working on one transition to the other. So first digital transition and then more environmental um, transition. And it's also, you know, refreshing to hear as a student, to hear like non-linear careers and how it's all about opportunities that come your way. So very refreshing to hear as a student. Um, Following on that, do you have maybe any advice for my fellow students at Imperial College or anyone who wants to embark on a career related to sustainability and climate change action?
1: Definitely. Um, I I think the lesson that I've learned through my career has really been, uh, well, what I always advise young people is don't kind of torture yourself with the question of what do I want to be? Because I think really in life, even if you think you have a really clear idea of what you want to be, and many people don't, and I certainly never did, Um, I think the path really only reveals itself once you start to take the first step and even then it only reveals itself one short stage at a time so you know there are roles that you don't even know about um, and future roles that don't even exist at this this point in time so my advice is really just to pick a sector or a role that interests you and then Find out more about what you like and what you don't like about it. And then absorb what you can from that vantage point that you couldn't see before. Um, So, yeah, don't stress about it too much.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you for that advice. Um, Comes in handy, especially because we are just entering the internship research season. So very useful. And I think it's important to remind ourselves what she just said. Um, I want to focus a little bit more on the last years of the career path that you just um, explained to us. So you've mentioned that you've been working on the Net Zero Banking Alliance for three years. So I guess we'll refer to it as NZBA through most part of the podcast. Can you explain to us what is NZBA and why do we need it? And maybe what happened
1: with defense and kind of the whole structure around this? Happy to. Yes, the um, the Net Zero Banking Alliance, I, I actually often call it NISBA for short, sure, which is probably not the nicest way to say it. But um, the reason that NISBA came around really goes back to um, needing something for the banking sector that was specific to the banking sector that gave a degree of consistency and credibility to what a net zero pledge means for a bank. So previous to the existence of the alliance, it was a bit of a kind of wild west out there of net zero pledges and goals and targets, all expressed in different ways, some more credible than others. And so what we really needed was a gold standard of what it means to be net zero for a bank. And we really needed to work that out for banks globally. So it had to be relevant for banks globally and also to work for banks of different sizes and business models, because there's a huge amount of heterogeneity within the sector. And it was really prompted by Mark Carney in his role as UN Special Envoy for Climate Finance um, when he was setting up the architecture of GFANS ahead of the Glasgow COP in 2021. And his aim really was to make the financial sector fit for purpose to support the transition to a net zero economy and to ensure that climate was taken into account in every financial transaction. So we set up um, NISBA as the banking pillar of GFANS and launched it at the Biden Climate Summit in April 2021. And the core of the commitment really is for banks to set decarbonisation targets at a sectoral level, covering all of the, the key high emitting sectors um, and those targets should be set on a, an emissions basis, so either absolute emissions or emissions intensity. But both absolute emissions and emissions intensity should be disclosed so that the whole sort of picture um, of the emissions profile is visible. And they should do that following net zero pathways that limit global warming to 1.5 degrees C and our net zero by 2050 and our low or no overshoot. So it's it's a really demanding commitment. It requires a lot of work, a lot of work to do the carbon accounting, the benchmarking, the target setting, and then developing the transition plans for how those targets could be met. Thank
0: you. Um, it uh, clears out Think a little bit because, as you mentioned, there's a lot of initiatives out there. So it's hard sometimes to make out, you know, different acronyms, different organizations. So, NZBA is the banking arm of defense. And you mentioned that it's a very ambitious commitment. So, towards net zero, banks have to set targets, do carbon um, accounting. So, that's a lot of effort. And what do you think? banks um, get out of joining the alliance? Are there any downsides to their commitments? What what's the um, motivation behind it?
1: I think that's a really good question, um, because it is a really big undertaking. And because it's such a big undertaking, we require that the commitment statement is signed by the CEO or the chair, because it's something that impacts the core kind of business strategy to such a big degree that it really needs that kind of tone from the top that that buy-in is there. I think there's probably five main things that banks get out of joining um, our alliance. The first really is the credibility that they've made their pledge to this kind of gold standard, and there's a certain amount of global recognition that that brings. I think that's hugely important because, as I said before, net zero pledges and commitments can be interpreted in so many different ways um and this makes it really clear what they are committing to. Secondly, it supports the setting and implementing and achieving of their targets that the bank sets individually. so obviously they have to do all this work individually, but it gives them a framework um, to work to, which is very helpful in that some of that thinking has been done behind the framework. The third thing I think is being part of that net zero ecosystem. So being part of the Glasgow Finance Alliance for net zero or GFANS and also you know, being there with peers. So we bring together and convene members to discuss the challenges, technical difficulties. We bring in experts to speak to members and signpost developments. And I think peer learning is a really attractive element of the Alliance. And um, there's also a bit of an opportunity there to help shape the global standards. And I think it's really seen as a bit of an entry ticket to have a seat at the table so, for example, for important events like a COP, you know, it, it's really important to have made that that robust commitment to be able to show up in the right way. Um, and then I think the next one is that it, it gets the banks on the front footing for upcoming regulation. So obviously there's lots of regulation coming or in some jurisdictions already come on disclosures, it helps them get their data infrastructure in place and it gets them thinking about transition plans before they actually have to, because ultimately doing this alignment work is really a vital part of their risk map, their risk mitigation. So it's how they're mitigating their transition risk. And so as they're going through that process and they're managing the risk, it really reveals a lot of opportunities that are there in the transition. And then it it can also really unlock finance. So, you know, investors increasingly have expectations around climate. And we can see that through various different investor frameworks that are coming out. And so by meeting those investor expectations, they really can access, uh, enhance and access uh, capital markets. And then I think lastly, um, it provides a bit of a voice for the global a banking industry on net zero. So it gives a route by which banks can highlight some of the interdependencies on other parts of the economy, because banks can't you, you know, take responsibility for the transition on their own. And it gives a way to kind of highlight those interconnectedness and dependencies.
0: Super interesting. Thank you, Sarah, for that global picture. It's particularly interesting what you said about peer learning and how banks can learn from uh, each other and the that NASBA, NZBA is a community. Um, I want to take a closer look at what the community is doing and how is NZBA performing. I've read that you just published the first NZBA progress report. So first of all, congratulations on reaching that milestone. I have several questions on this stock take that you did. First of all, can you explain briefly how the member banks have performed and What impact do you think the alliance has had on the banking landscape?
1: Yeah, I think the impact has come through two routes. One is the growth of the alliance and the other is the targets that the banks are setting. So we launched in April 2021 with 43 members, which was brilliant and more than we had um, anticipated And we've now got um, 141 banks that have committed to align their lending and investment portfolios to net zero by 2050 and align with 1.5 low, no overshoot pathways. So I think that's huge, you know, and our members come from 45 countries. They have around 74 trillion US dollars of total assets, and that's about 40% of global banking assets. So the potential that is there to drive a really systemic shift in the economy is huge. And prior to the alliance, as far as we're aware, there were no sectoral net zero targets from banks that were 1.5 aligned. And we now have over 100 members have already set some net zero targets. um, And all of the members are working towards having targets that cover more of their balance sheets. So we know banks have to start somewhere. You know, they can't set meaningful targets that cover all activities that they do straight away. But there is a general ethos of covering more and more over time as data gets better and methodologies get better. So I think that's, you know, a huge, huge impact. And I think we have to sometimes try and remember what a big shift that is in the space of less than three years. Mm-hmm. I can
0: see that indeed NZBI has been growing very steadily and has gathered quite an impressive amount of banks. Um, so you mentioned 40% of global banking assets, which is absolutely huge, Um and you also mentioned that NZBA is represented in 45 countries. So a follow-up question on that is, how are different regions represented within the alliance? And how do you develop a framework that's ambitious enough, so that aims for net zero, while also attracting smaller banks or banks from developing economies that might not have the same regulation or same infrastructure environment to decarbonize their portfolio? How do you do that?
1: Yeah, about a third of our members are from developing countries. And I think it's fair to say that they do have a much more difficult job. So they often have a much bigger challenge when it comes to data because oftentimes their jurisdictions don't have as much sort of regulation around emissions disclosure for their clients and for themselves, and they often have real difficulties getting consultants. And also there's real issues around the granularity of scenarios that are available. So we do require that targets are set using 1.5 aligned pathways but exactly what does that mean for a bank in a particular country where, you know, you can't just sort of lump all the countries in one region together because they are so very different and they're starting from economies with radically different sort of energy infrastructures and maturities, et cetera, you know. You can have an emerging economy which is very fossil fuel heavy right next to another country that isn't so fossil fuel heavy in its energy mix. But I think in all cases, what's common is it's all about clean development and moving forward with clean technologies and financing Renewables and other climate solutions. And, you know, what we really have to do is understand what the barriers are to this type of investment and overcoming those barriers. So I think our framework basically has the backstop of science behind it. So it's very much science based. It's very much requiring members to use scientific pathways that are well respected. But I think there's a long way to go in terms of really. Helping members understand what that means in terms of their local context. And it, it is really hard for banks that are in countries that don't have net zero by 2050 targets. And that is a barrier in some countries. There are some countries where we don't have any members. And that's a large part of the reason because, you know, if the country and the, the government isn't um, developing that kind of strategy it's hard for a bank to uh, to see how they can stand a chance of meeting it Um, but I think where we do have bank banks in developing countries it's really important for us to support them because their leadership is so important in influencing the whole banking sector in that country and showing what's possible and we do have some really great leaders within the alliance that are kind of you know Um, forging ahead and showing what's possible. Mm -hmm.
0: So once again, we come back to
1: the idea of community and peer learning
0: between banks. So very interesting. I also want to dig a bit deeper into what does net zero actually mean for banks? So you've mentioned, you know, sectoral targets, net zero targets. What are the main tools that banks are using to meet this target and decarbonize their loan and investment portfolios. So, are they divesting from fossil fuels, investing in clean energy? As you mentioned, what are the tools banks are resorting to?
1: It's a great question. And I think for many banks, it's still kind of work in progress. But I think all of the members are now really thinking with every loan or investment that they make about how it impacts their climate figures. And They are really starting to engage with clients, developing products that can support their client's transition and taking quite a whole host of other actions and really embedding it throughout their operations. They're starting to train staff and embedding a climate strategy well means that it really impacts almost every role within a bank. So there's lots to do in terms of that embedding. But I think in terms of strategies, there's a range of strategies. So in this regard, I think banks are quite different to other financial institution types like asset managers, asset owners and insurers. Um, And I think, you know, the key thing that we're really focused on is the real world impact. And that's not always best achieved by divesting Because if another provider of capital steps in to fill that demand, you know, the capital might be a bit more expensive. It might not. um, But we call that transferred emissions. And although they've been transferred to another entity, they're still happening in the real world. So we're not after kind of paper decarbonisation. And in order to achieve that real world difference, the starting point is really client engagement. And an engagement strategy does need an escalation strategy. If a bank isn't getting a credible transition plan from a client and their willingness to align to the net zero transition, then they do need to start analysing the risks of that and considering their options. Now, we know some sectors can't transition and there does need to be a mechanism for managed phase-out of certain carbon-intensive assets. And that needs deep engagement and often a multi-stakeholder approach. And we see that happening in things like the JETPs, which are the Just Energy Transition uh, Partnerships. And um, so I think the kind of upshot is that the strategy is very particular to a sector. And I think for heavy industries, you do need that multi-stakeholder approach because there has to be a certain amount of orchestration that a bank can't do on its own. So there needs to be an industrial strategy to coordinate. So, for example, you need like um, a kind of accelerator or a cluster where you might bring together things like hydrogen production with cement or steel and carbon capture and storage infrastructure. Um, And and I think that's where um, the, the kind of the national level approach is really important But whereas for something like mortgages, it's a completely different strategy. And so, you know, how can a bank stimulate demand for green mortgages or retrofit loans? That can be quite difficult for them. And that's where policy advocacy is really vital so that the banks can make it clear to governments that the housing stock is not going to be able to be aligned to a 1.5 scenario without some really serious support for deep retrofits at the scale and pace of action that's needed. So, you know, no bank wants to exclude the average person from moving house or becoming a house owner just because they can't afford to buy something with an EPC rating of A. Um, And, you know, they wouldn't want to do that. And even if they could, it would have regulatory implications in many countries. So this is really why we take a sectoral approach. So banks can think really deeply about the pathways and what they mean for each sector, what levers they have to pull and where they need to kind of call on other parts of the economy and society to bring that transition together. So
0: both support from policy and um, industrial, then evolution towards what you were saying, so hydrogen, um, low carbon technologies. Um, i like your take, on the debate between, you know, kind of divestment and engagement. And I think it's important also to think about that notion, as you mentioned, of transferred emission. If the bank is divesting from fossil fuel, it doesn't mean that, you know, the power plant is not going to happen, it's not going to be developed, it's just going to be financed by someone else. So, quite an interesting observation. And talking about fossil fuels, we have been talking about fossil fuel during COP28. I know you've Attended COP28 in Dubai, and we would love to have your insights as well. We made an episode of the Green Minds podcast before. So it would be interesting also to have a take after COP28. First of all, can you tell us how many Cups you've attended? How did banks show up at COP28? And have you been able to witness maybe an evolution in their in the participation of banks in the place that's accorded to finance within the cops.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I'm a relative newbie to cops. My first one was at Sharm El Sheikh last year, and I attended Dubai this year. So I've only been to two. So obviously, many of my colleagues are much, much more <laughs> veterans of the whole process. Um, so I think you know, Glasgow COP was was kind of the finance COP and saw the launch of GFANS. And I think, you know, since Glasgow, Sharm el-Sheikh and Dubai, it, it's just an increasing trend for private finance to be part of that process. And I would say that, you know, in Dubai, banks were there in a really big way. And I think being part of a net zero alliance where you've made that pledge is a really important part of showing up Um some banks we saw there had really big teams and had really gone to a huge amount of effort to showcase what they're doing and to uh, convene really important stakeholders to progress on some of these interdependencies that I talked about earlier. And I think it really just shows the importance that banks are placing on climate change and how central it is to their business strategies, but also how central they are to the transition in you know, in the provision of capital to the real economy. And we certainly ran a lot of events and were involved with lots of partnerships. And it was really encouraging to see that, I think, this momentum from private finance really is growing. um, And I think it's, you know, a very genuine interest. To follow up on that, so there's, of course, a
0: growing focus on private finance and the report of CPI that I was mentioning earlier, found that private finance actually accounts for 49%, so half of um, climate finance investments in 2021-2022. So absolutely um, important to climate finance development. So as I explained briefly in the introduction, climate finance investments are under what they should be to reach net zero in 2050 uh, and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. And COP28 also brought some discussions on setting a new collective quantified goal on climate finance that would probably be set around 2024 2025 to reflect really the scale and the urgency of climate action. So how do you see the role of banks in reaching these global climate finance targets?
1: That's a really great question and as you said you know the role of private finance is so crucial because public finance just is not going to be sufficient to make this transition happen by a long way so i think you mentioned some estimates earlier i mean estimates vary widely because it really depends how you're defining the transition but you know anything from 4 trillion a year 7 trillion a year even more maybe you know 11 trillion a year in terms of um, investments needed so it it's huge but there's a real um, interrelationship between the private and public finance in that it's possible to really leverage private finance using public finance um, but there are lots of barriers and reasons why that's not happening to the extent that it needs to. So I think there's lots of work um, underway on that, on really understanding some of those barriers and overcoming them. So, you know, I think one of the ways that UNEPFI really helps is by creating these frameworks for responsible banking so that banks are thinking about sustainability in a really holistic manner, about minimising harm and maximising good. So it includes climate, but also other related areas that we need to be Kind of coordinated on, but I think in terms of those targets, unfortunately, I don't think there was enough progress on this new collective quantified goal. And there's so much to do there in terms of understanding what's needed from the pu- public sources and what's needed from private sources, but also defining sort of how much is domestic or international or who, who's contributing. How much is for mitigation or adaptation? And then questions around what mechanisms sort of qualify or financial instruments might qualify. So is it about guarantees or green bonds or blended finance, bilateral agreements or debt for climate swaps? So lots of different mechanisms that that could play a part, but it's not really clear what and how much. Um, Things like grants versus concessionary loans, And then there's a whole host of questions around how it's monitored and tracked and the accountability and transparency. And a big issue really is the mechanisms by which this finance is accessed because it needs to be a lot simpler and quicker. Some of these climate funds can take years to access for projects and we don't have that kind of time to wait. So this goal, which has been articulated I think back in 2009, I think, may have been this 100 billion a year. You know, it it's only really just now thought to be met. But as we say, 100 billion is a drop in the ocean when we're talking about the trillions that are needed. So that is very much a flaw. And I would just say these climate finance targets are really a work in progress. And I think we need to see a lot more progress on that for, for COP29. I think Concretizing all of those questions that I just outlined is, is really important. I just wanted to add one thing that when people talk about the financing needs for the transition to a net zero economy, these sound like really big numbers. But I want to stress something important, which is that even if societies choose not to finance the transition, Um, Global economic needs are such that the vast majority of this money would be invested anyway, and much of it in high-carbon assets. So this isn't a choice between green investments and no investments. This is about making the choice to direct existing capital flows towards clean, low-carbon infrastructure, rather than polluting and high-carbon infrastructure. So it's not money wasted or what could be better deployed elsewhere it's increasingly well-established that a fast transition to clean energy is much cheaper than having a slow or no transition. And this is even without considering the massive financial costs that failing to prevent really extreme climate change would bring. These would dwarf the costs of investing in the transition in the long term. And then also there are lots of non-financial losses and costs associated with the human displacement and species loss, et cetera, that would happen.
0: Really interesting, especially, you know, talking about access to finance, which is indeed uh, a big topic and especially for developing countries. So you mentioned the, the figure of a hundred billion. Um so that was supposed to go from developed country to developing country. And I think that you know the report I was talking about from CPI underlined that eighty four percent of climate finance is actually domestic. So we are truly you know lacking international finance from developed to developing country which are at the forefront of climate change effects um, for now. So um, there's a lot of different mechanisms. But you mentioned that we need more progress for COP29 in these target setting areas. What is the role of UNEP in these discussions? Because we emphasize a lot the role of governments, of, you know, the geopolitics behind, but there are many other actors, companies to nonprofit, profit uh, even local actors at COP28. So... What is the role of UNEP and UNEPFI in these discussions and in these COP negotiations?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think the role of UNEP is extremely strong in terms of synthesizing evidence and sort of trying to size the issues. So, you know, UNEP has a number of really fantastic reports, which include the adaptation gap report, the emissions gap report and the production gap report and has been instrumental in this global stock take that's just happened. So I think that's hugely important. And, you know, UNEPFI in particular, with these frameworks that we're working with can really help to define the role of private finance within that Interesting.
0: I will link the reports that you just mentioned so that listeners can actually take a look. Then what what are your main takeaways from COP28? We've been talking a lot about the mention of fossil fuels as the the first agreement of COP mentioning fossil fuels. So um, what are your main takeaways? Do you expect that including this language will trigger maybe additional engagement or divestment? So What are your takeaways from this COP and how do you think it will impact the banking system?
1: Yeah, I think it's easy to be disappointed that the Dubai consensus didn't have language about phase out, but I didn't necessarily expect that. And I think to have language about transitioning away from fossil fuels is hugely encouraging and is a really big step forward that I think probably shouldn't be underestimated. So I think that will help really to drive the message home to all stakeholders to really think about this transition in a very serious way and to consider issues around things like stranded assets. So I think in terms of general takeaways from COP28, I think it started off really well with the announcement around loss and damage and the operationalisation of that fund by the World Bank. And I mean, again, we know that the amounts pledged to that are hugely insufficient at the moment in terms of climate change induced losses. But I think just having that agreement in principle is a step forward, which happened at Sharm el-Sheikh. And now that operationalisation needs to happen at pace and we need to scale up the volume of finance there. But, yeah, very important kind of principle behind the formation of that fund. Um, I think it was, as I said, a bit disappointing that there wasn't so much progress on the new collective quantified goal. There's a lot more work to do there. Um, Similarly, still a lot of work to do in terms of the, the framework behind the global goal on adaptation. I think adaptation does need a lot more emphasis. And although, you know, our Net Zero Banking Alliance is... Purely focused on mitigation, I do want to emphasise that it's not a kind of either-or when it comes to mitigation and adaptation. We desperately need both. I think there was a range of really good commitments. So, for example, and these are things where banks can really play a role. So I think 130 countries pledged to triple renewable energy production from 3.5 to 11 terawatts by 2030. And to look at some of the issues around permitting and planning and to invest in their grids where there are queues to link up renewable projects. So that's obviously a huge area for investment for banks Um, and also this commitment to double energy efficiency. So energy efficiency is really the quickest and most cost-effective option for emissions reductions, and those technologies are really well-established. So there's a pledge to double the rate of efficiency improvements from 2% to 4% every year to 2030. Um, Then the cooling pledge, which I guess is associated with that because we've got this terrible positive feedback loop that the hotter we get, the more emissions we make from air conditioning, and cold food storage. So we need to solve for that. Um, And then some breakthroughs on nature with the 2030 Global Deforestation Goal and this commitment to reversing forest degradation, really very important when it comes to net zero in terms of nature-based solutions for carbon sinks and ecosystem-based adaptation as well. You know, we can't solve the climate crisis without solving the nature crisis. And also there was good focus on methane, which is really a low hanging fruit. So some other areas where we need more is on the carbon markets. Lots of key questions remain. And on just transition, which I think is a lens that all the areas of negotiation need to to look through. So quite, quite a mixed bag, really.
0: Lots of good news, though, that you mentioned. So... Um, I just noted a couple of them. So commitment on energy efficiency, renewables, the loss and damage fund pledges. So these are some good news that we need to also keep in mind. There are also a lot of things you mentioned that could foster more progress. So among them adaptation, which only represents today 9% of global climate finance, carbon markets, just transition. So these are just a few notions that you mentioned, but what what do you see as coming trends for the year, for 2024, because 2023 has been quite a special year, especially with rising interest rates that triggered additional benefits for banks. So that could be interesting. What do you see as the main trends in sustainable finance for 2024?
1: Yeah, well, I think going back to 2021, that was kind of the year of the pledge. And then 2022 was the year of target setting. 2023 was really the year of the transition plan. I think in 2024, there'll be two really strong themes uh, for private finance. So, one is on transition finance and how that can be addressed in a robust way. So, you know, we need to make sure that the risk of greenwashing is well managed. So, In the alliance, we have a focus on financed emissions. But if a bank is doing a lot of transition finance, it could make those financed emissions go up before they go down. So there's lots of thinking at the moment about what kind of leading indicators can be used and how transition finance can be defined in a robust way so that we know it's not just um, an excuse for BAU financing, but it really is actually going to be making a difference. And the second area I think is on nature and how that climate nature nexus can be managed in a way that accelerates progress as fast as possible and helps to achieve the goals of the Kunming Mon- Montreal Framework. Um, and we really need to maximise the synergies and the win wins that are out there. Um, but on the other hand, we do need to make sure that like nature based solutions are done in an ecologically sensitive way because there are big mistakes that could be made in, in efforts to roll out nature-based solutions really quickly. Now, you mentioned interest rates in your question. I think that's an interesting area um, in terms of thinking how that will impact the transition. So I guess we need to remember that this, the low interest rate environment that we had since the great financial crisis was really anomalous. And uh, where we are now is much more kind of historically normal. And I've no idea how long high interest rate environments are going to go on. But I think with these geopolitical pressures that we're seeing, um, it may draw out the need for higher interest rates. And whether we ever get back to that kind of very low interest rate environment that we saw between 2008 and the end of twenty one is anyone's guess, really. But I think, generally speaking, banks have the capacity to be more profitable in a high-interest-rate environment. So that might give them more capacity to better resource the sustainability work, which, you know, is very resource-intensive. And also to consider things like concessionary rates for loans that are going to make a big difference in real-world emissions. So there's potential there. But I think one issue really is that interest rates are high because of high inflation globally. And obviously, that's due to situation with the Ukraine war, the pandemic, geopolitics and other ongoing issues like we're seeing now with um, security issues around shipping. And these are all pushing up prices and because of that this this cost of living crisis is really going to influence people's ability or willingness to pay to address the climate crisis and so we really need to be thinking carefully about the policies that are coming in in terms of just transition and fairness and you know but we desperately need these policies to achieve these climate goals so i think it certainly makes it a lot more challenging but it's really important to bring everybody along on that transition um and that does require a perception of fairness otherwise i think you know we won't see it happen
0: absolutely especially coming from france we've witnessed some severe backlash to transition policies which didn't take into account kind of the fairness component within implementing climate policies. so that that's very true um well, we've talked about a lot of things on which, you know, unstable geopolitics, inflation, cost of living crisis, those are not so, you know, cheerful prospects. But are you feeling optimistic um, about
1: the climate crisis? Well, there's a question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think, you know, when you look at these reports that come out from UNEP, um, things like the Emissions Gap Report, the Adaptation Gap Report and the Production Gap Report, they are really stark and depressing readings and we are massively off track from where we need to be. And I really don't hold out hope for the miracle cures that we might get, such as nuclear fission or carbon capture and storage on a gigaton scale. But, I mean, they would be lovely, but uh, we are not relying on those. And so we take very much a precautionary approach. And that's really important because we can't carry on with what we're doing now and think that we'll pull it back later when we have better technological solutions. We're already perilously close to quite a number of irreversible tipping points. So, you know, that's why I think the Net Zero Banking Alliance really requires alignment with low or no overshoot pathways. So there is precaution there. And we need to respect the mitigation hierarchy, which means reduce emissions as quickly as possible now with known technologies. But I think one thing I feel most pessimistic about is the way that climate's become part of the culture wars and has become so politicised and polarised. And that There is so much misinformation out there, so we really need to do as good a job as we can at conveying the science and also about how normal people will be impacted by this, because what we need to reduce is this issue that's known as the psychological distance. So that's where people think that it may affect somebody over there or in the future um, or anybody other than me here now. Um, so you know we really need to get that across that climate change is going to affect everybody. I mean, obviously, some people are much more vulnerable than others, but we need to kind of somehow get over that psychological distance. so I think on balance, I'm probably more pessimistic than optimistic, <laughs> but I wouldn't be able to get up every day and do the work that I do if I didn't have an element of optimism that humankind can kind of wake up and put the kind of effort into solving this this climate crisis that we do see with things like the pandemic or wars because we can pull pull it out of the bag when we need to we've shown that and we do have the capability and we do have the capacity it's just a matter of finding the will I think that's a Great way to conclude the podcast. I agree that working
0: in this sector, you do need a little bit of optimism and faith in humanity and our collective ability to solve issues. So yeah, great response. Thank you very much, uh, Sarah. It's been a pleasure discussion with you and learning from your very rich experience. Thank you so much. Thanks, Marie-Celine. And to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed exchanging with Sarah. If you'd like to hear more insights, more subjects and more professionals, don't forget to subscribe to the Imperial Business Podcast. And if you have any suggestion or if you know the perfect guest for us to interview, please drop us a message at podcast.greenminds at Thank you very much for listening and see you soon.